0: Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Alive, we're taking a look at how we can embrace the daily resurrection life Jesus provides for us. Today's speaker is teaching minister, Tim Peace. The last two months, we did a series called History. If you remember, early on in that series, Didi mentioned how he was, you know, a guy that likes to see a plan come together. And so it worked out that uh, we got to go on a trip to the Holy Land at the beginning of January and then got to spend the rest of that series uh, sharing pictures and stories from that. And you would think that since the history series is over, the, I'd stop doing that. But I like messing plans up. So I want to show you a picture this morning. That is like a quarter of the Pool of Siloam. I say a quarter because all of the uh, shrubbery or the hedge of protection that the Greek Orthodox Church has let build up around their property. Hedge of protection is a prayer joke, sorry. Um, All of that can't be excavated because the Greek Orthodox Church owns it, and so we can only see like a quarter of it. But it was still kind of cool because we had just come out of Hezekiah's tunnel. We all had our pant legs rolled up real high. try to avoid the water. It didn't work. Our jeans, pants, they were all wet. And so our tour guide, Mark Zeese, who's standing in front of Dee Dee down in the bottom right of the picture here, decided this is a great place to sit us down and to tell a story about what happened at this particular site. And that works out perfectly for me this morning because I'm going to share the same story of what happened at this site. Probably not going to tell it as good as Mark East did because it can. But, nevertheless, it's important because our passage today is going to be in John 10, and what happened at this site sets up our passage. And the Gospel of John's interesting because, in the first 12 chapters before Jesus has kind of his alone time with his, his closest followers for chapters 13 through 17. Um, we see Jesus perform signs and miracles and constantly get in debates with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And on, on one occasion, he really gets at them because he basically uses the name for God to describe himself. And so they pick up stones to stone him to death. And at the beginning of chapter 9, then, it, it the, the chapter turns and it says... As they were walking along, so you know Jesus has just had a very close to death experience and he's just walking along with his disciples and suddenly they spot a man that the text tells us was born blind. And his disciples ask him this really peculiar question when they see the man. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, that question is problematic enough, but Jesus' statement is even more peculiar for those of us reading the story today and for his disciples. Because he says, well, actually, guys, it wasn't his sin and it wasn't his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind. Instead, it was an opportunity for God. Now, we're looking at this story, and it is just mind-blowing to us because, essentially, Jesus has qualified something that we would consider to be a a burden, a problem, a difficulty in life, and he's qualified it as a good thing. Now, the reason that we have a problem with him doing this is because we value people in a way that says that people are inherently good. I hear it all the time. You hear someone say, oh, that person was a uh, they're a good person. They're a good person. You know, we use this kind of language when we talk about people, our friends. And so the idea that something uh, would go awry in their life is just mind blowing to us. And we actually, we actually look to God and we say, God, how could you allow this to happen? It's a good person here. Now, that's not why the disciples had a problem with it, they had the opposite problem. Because if you've read the Old Testament, specifically the book of Job, You would know that in the book of Job, Job is considered a righteous man. He has everything. And he is a servant of the Lord. And God is having a conversation with the devil at the beginning of the book. And he says, you know what? I don't think you can turn my servant servant Job against me. He's like, but I'll let you do everything possible all the way up to the point of death to test it. And so Job loses his family, he loses his health, he loses his riches, everything. And his friends come to him, his friends, and they say, Job, just come clean. What did you do wrong to deserve this? All this taken from you, all this hurt given to you. See, that was the mindset of the Jewish people, even the disciples of Jesus, In order for something like blindness to have happened to this man, something had to have been wrong in his life or in his relative's life, and so on. But Jesus says, no, this in fact is an opportunity for God to show his power. And so Jesus calls the man to him after baffling his disciples And he spits on the ground, because he's got no manners. And he makes some clay out out of the dirt. And he smears it on the eyes of the blind man. And then he says to him, he says, Now you go to the pool of Siloam and wash the dirt off of your eyes. So he does. Now, I assume he sent some people to help him get there, because... It's like, Jesus, you know, he can't see. He does, and suddenly the man can see. He's got sight for the first time in his life, and he is excited. And the people see him, and they recognize him as the man that had been born blind, and they are excited. And word spreads. And guess what happens in the first century Jewish culture when word spreads about a miracle? It gets back to the Pharisees. And so, suddenly, the man is taken before the Pharisees, and they begin to question him. And they're not really questioning him because they're interested in his story at all. They're not interested in the cure, they're interested in the miracle maker, Jesus. They've had problems with him so far. They're divided, the text tells us. Some of them think he's just a vile sinner, while others think, well, Only someone with relationship to God could perform such miracles. So there's a debate, and this formerly blind man is the perfect occasion for them to get into the debate. So they start to question him. They say, Tell us the story. How did he do this? And he tells the story, and they say, Well, what do you make of him for healing you? And the man says, Well, he's a prophet ah, he's a prophet. Well, they're not happy with this. And then suddenly they don't believe the man's story anymore. And so they bring in his parents because they want to know, was he really born blind or is this just some big show that Jesus has put on? Now, when they bring his parents in, his parents are pretty frightened because this is the religious leadership, the authority of the day, and they're brought to this council, this inquisition to stand before them, and they say, is this your son? And they say, well, yes, this is our son. And is it true that he was actually born blind? And they say, yeah, it's true. And then they say, well, how is he now able to see? Now, the parents are like, "Eh, we don't like where this is going. We're kind of afraid. So they start to deflect. And they come up with a good deflection. They say, well, you know, guys, our son's an adult. He's more than capable of speaking for himself. So why don't you bring him back in and ask him for yourselves? And they leave the party. And they bring the man back in. And they question him again. And it's interesting what they say to him. They say, speak the truth before God. Nothing like telling them God's watching to get them to admit he's lying because they don't believe him. How did this happen? And he goes on and he goes, I've already told you, but I'll tell you the story again. And then he tells the story again and then they still don't believe him. And, and then he finally stops. He gets agitated and he goes, why are you so interested in Jesus? Do you want to be his disciples too? Uh-oh. Before, the man was exited out and his parents were brought and He just thought Jesus was a prophet. But now, as he's talking to the Pharisees, suddenly Jesus becomes his master. He's now a disciple of Jesus. This does not go over well with the Pharisees. So they begin to argue with him. And eventually, they say, how dare you lecture us? How dare you? You were steeped in sin since birth. And the story tells us that they put him out. Now, here's the thing about that phrase. We read it and we can easily gloss over it and say, oh, well, they just got tired of him. They're the authority figures. They're the leaders. So they just said, leave us. You, whatever they want to fill in the blank with. But that's not what's going on here. To be put out means to be exiled, excommunicated. And see, there's a big difference between our, common, or our current culture and the culture of this man. In our culture, we can come to church on Sunday. We can maybe go to our small group. We can go serve. We can pick different time periods throughout the week where we put our church hat, our Christian hat on. And we have other hats too. And so when Monday rolls around, we can take that hat off and we can put our work hat on. And maybe we get home from a long day at work and we take that hat off and we put our family person hat on. And then maybe we go out on the weekend and then we put our friend hat on. And you know the beauty of putting all these different hats on is One doesn't have to influence the other, does it? Now, I know we're all good Christians here, so our church hat is never off. But I'm not accusing anybody of going out and becoming a vile sinner outside of church. I'm just saying that you can get by in life without wearing your faith on your sleeve. But this guy? Uh Uh-uh. No, he was put out. His faith... His faith community, his work, his sustenance, everything he had was woven into the fabric of being a Jewish man in the first century. So to be kicked out, to be put out, meant that he was in effect on life support. He had nothing. Nothing. And so... He's got nothing. And Jesus hears about this. And he comes and he finds the man. And he says, do you want to know who the Son of God is? Do you want to put your faith in the Son of Man? And now remember, when Jesus sent him away, he still couldn't see, so he hasn't seen Jesus yet. And so he responds and he says, yes, just show him to me. And Jesus says, It's me. And so, the man falls and he worships Jesus. And the Pharisees are around and they've watched this. And Jesus says, It is for judgment that I have come into this world to give sight to the sightless and to make blind those who see. And as Jesus says this, the Pharisees, already agitated by the whole situation, come and they say, Well, Are you saying, Jesus, that we are blind? You know how Jesus responds? He says, you would not be guilty if you were blind, but because you claim that you have sight, because you claim that you have sight, your guilt remains. Which then raises a big question for us, right? Because The blind man wasn't truly without for being blind based on what Jesus just taught here. And yet, it seems that in coming to Jesus and having his sight restored, what did he gain? Because association with Jesus in this instance caused him to lose everything. It might have been better that he stayed blind if you're reading this far into the story. The scene doesn't change when we get to chapter 10. And if you think Jesus is turning everything upside down now, just wait until you hear the parable that we're about to read through. And it begins in verse 1 of chapter 10. This is what Jesus does. The Pharisees, everyone, the blind man, everyone on the scene is still there. And he says this, He says, In very truth, I tell you, the man who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in some other way, is nothing but a thief and robber. He who enters by the door is the shepherd in charge of the sheep. The doorkeeper admits him, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow because they know his voice. And they will not follow a stranger. They will run away from him because they do not recognize the voice of strangers. Now John interrupts and he says that this was a parable that Jesus told them, but remember they're, they're blind Pharisees so they don't understand it. And so Jesus speaks again. In very truth, I tell you, I am the door of the sheepfold. The sheep paid no heed to any who came before me, for they were all thieves and robbers. I am the door. Anyone who comes into the fold through me will be safe. He will go in and out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and may have it, In all of its fullness. Now, first of all, that saying in verse 10, it's one we've heard many times over. We love that. Fullness of life, life to the full, life in its abundance. It's one of those quotable passages. But if you think about it, when the blind man associated himself with Jesus, In a worldly sense, did he gain life or did he lose it? That's where this starts to get a little bit interesting. Here's another thing that's interesting. For it being a parable, Jesus uses a lot of very real and very true uh, life circumstances that his hearers would have understood. And what I mean by this is every single one of these Jewish people would be aware of what shepherding was. They would be aware of how it looked. And when Jesus describes it, he doesn't change any of the details. Sure, he talks about hypothetical characters coming in, thieves, robbers. Later on, he'll talk about animals, wolves coming in, or maybe the hired men that run and cower. But here he talks about thieves and robbers. But everything he has described in these 10 verses is accurate when it comes to the portrait of being the owner of a sheep pen. The way sheep pens were constructed in the 1st century is they were either rectangular or circular out in the open air but they had a fencing either made of wood or made of stone and on top of most of them there would be some sort of barbed wire something to keep someone from attempting to jump over the pen but there was one place in the sheep pen that was exposed the entrance Maybe the entrance was exposed because it was a doorway and they didn't put any of the barbed wire on top of it. And in some cases, there was no doorway at all. No doorway at all. And so these people are plodding along with Jesus and they probably like what they're hearing because Jesus claims to be the Messiah. And the doorway, not being there, Wouldn't be peculiar at all, him calling himself the door. Why wouldn't it be? Well, because later on, Jesus is going to call himself the shepherd, the good shepherd. And, you know, if there wasn't a door, do you know who became the door? The shepherd. See, Jesus can be both shepherd and door at the same time. So they like this, because the shepherd has a rod and a staff, and he's there to defend and protect and to thwart off any danger. And this all sounds really, really, really good to his hearers. But the problem, though, is is this life in the fullness thing. Because they've just watched a blind man that's been given sight get put out of the temple. So they're thinking, well, how does this person give sight Or, how does this person give life? And what does it even mean to have fullness of life? Well, in the story, there's robbers and thieves, and they seek or they kill, destroy, steal. So, what does fullness of life mean? Well, it means the opposite of that it means proximity to God, access to the shepherd is what it means, it means protection. From God, protection from the shepherd. It means provision from God. It means that their needs are going to be met. They're going to be taken care of, right? And finally, it means purpose from God. They hear the voice of the shepherd, the door, and they follow and they don't go get led astray. They have a calling. Their calling is to be in step with the shepherd. And you know, this sounds fantastic because we're in this Alive series and we're coming up on Easter. And I would love to tell you that all of this is as good as it sounds, but there's a problem. And the problem comes into the story with the verse that I left off until now. And it's another one we've all heard a lot of times. But in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the thing is, is this is a phrase Jesus uses over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. And do you know what laying down one's life means in the Gospel of John and what it would have meant to the hearers? It means that one will die. Now, on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection, we understand the sacrifice that's meant there. But imagine you're hearing a parable about a good shepherd, the door. And you believe that the role of the shepherd is to ward off danger with the rod and the staff. And he says, Ah, I'm the good shepherd. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to lay down at the entrance and die. What do you think they think will happen to the sheep if the shepherd is dead? The intruders, the thieves, the robbers are going to come in. They're going to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus, again, has thrown everyone for a loop. Because they've tied Messiah to shepherd of Israel. They've tied Messiah to somebody that's going to protect them, ward off danger, lead the battle for their freedom. And Jesus says, "Nah." uh I'm the Messiah that's going to come and lay down his life. Which is interesting imagery for a doorway because that's what the shepherd would do. They'd get down on the ground at night to protect the sheep and lay there. Of course, they would get up. They would not allow themselves to be trampled and killed. But that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. And so that means that this fullness of life thing All of the good things that we get when we think about fullness of life, they may not mean what we think they do. They may not mean what we think they do. See, that's the paradox of Jesus. We think blindness is a bad thing, a malady. But for Jesus, to be blind is the only way to truly see. And you know, elsewhere, Jesus does some turning things upside down, too. He says things like, the poor in spirit, you would think that would be bad, but guess what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The sorrowful, they will be the ones that find consolation. The gentle, now they're not going to be trampled on. They're going to rule the show. Those that hungry and thirst, those without, this blind man that's without, he's the one that will be filled. Those that show mercy are the merciful. Those whose hearts are pure, you know, we think purity is passe and bland and old-timey. Yeah, those that are pure in heart will be the ones that see God. The peacemakers Not those that get up with rod and staff to kill, but those that are peacemakers will be called God's children. And here's the best one, right? Those that are persecuted, those that are put out of commission, the kingdom itself belongs to them. That's what Jesus teaches. See, Life in all of its fullness, the things that we get in the way Jesus defines that, doesn't mean that we're suddenly going to become parent of the year, spouse of the century, employee of the month, champion all the time, all the riches that we could ever want given to us if you just have faith. Nope. Sorry, Joel. Joel. It's not what it means. No, see, fullness of life means relationship with God. And he's all the sustenance and protection and calling that we need. And that's why at the beginning, when we look at that question the disciples ask and the answer that Jesus gives that's why we're so thrown off by it. Because we're seeing things upside down. There was a book by Dallas Willard uh, one time where he talks in the very opening of the book about this, this pilot, he's, he's flying a plane, and he thinks he's at the wrong altitude, and so he, he actually goes up, thinking that he'll go up to the higher altitude, but unfortunately, he, he forgot that the plane was upside down, <laughs> and he crashed. See, when we read and encounter Jesus' teaching, we're often like the pilot in that plane. We think we've got it all figured out, but we're depending solely on ourselves. We, we allow the things of this world to define life, but it's actually Jesus that defines life. We look to the things of this world to give value to our lives. But it's Jesus that gives value to our lives. And you know the thing is, wanting to be a good parent, a good spouse, a good friend, a good worker, all of these things, none of them are bad. They're not vices, they're actually virtues. But here's the thing. They, in and of themselves, don't give value to life. Jesus gives value to life, and in turn, Jesus gives value to them. You want to become a good parent? Give your life to Jesus. You want to be a good spouse? Give your life to Jesus. You want to be a good friend? Give your life to Jesus. If you want to be a good employee, give your life to Jesus. If you want to be great at whatever you put your hands and your heart and your head to, guess what? I know I'm a broken record. Give your life to Jesus. And it doesn't mean that it will come easy. And it doesn't mean there won't be pain. But it will give you access to the only relationship that actually matters. You know, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, he repeats this phrase, everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And everyone that's ever read the book, they're like, man, that's a depressing book, until you get to the end. Because he actually says there is one thing that has meaning, and that's worshiping God. And when you get that figured out, everything that's meaningless regains meaning. It's redeemed. And so, I want to challenge you as we go through this series. I want to challenge you to stop looking at life as if you need to look to the things of this world to find value in it, as if you need something outside of God to give you value, and instead, I want you to take a look as we look forward to Easter Sunday at the resurrection. The power, Didi Dee Dee said this on a video we we're doing this week. The power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the power that is within us through the Spirit so we can walk in step and we can actually live a life devoted by God so that the things that we do actually are valued because we find value in Him. Don't continue to play the comparison game, the I ought to have done this better game, the I should have gone there and I went here game. But we serve a God that wants to give you life. And he proved it by laying down his life for the sheep. It's the world that sees things upside down. And it's the ones that they call blind that truly see. Embrace the blindness. Embrace the humility. And instead, come to the one that gives life. Life in all of its fullness. Please pray with me. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.